Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's video. I hope that it encourages you and I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that you have some community around you to be able to talk through some of these concepts and truths with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of our community here at Restore. You can learn all about it on our website at restoreaustin.org. So click there and get all the information that you need. I hope that we see you soon at one of our gatherings, and I hope that you enjoy this message. In the year 9 BC, nine years, uh, about nine years before the birth of Christ, a stone was carved in the ancient Greek city of Preen in honor of the first emperor of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus. This famous stone came to be known as the inscription of Preen. You can actually see it still today if you go to the Berlin Museum where it resides. And if you did, if you went to the Berlin Museum and you you looked at the inscription of Preen on it, you would find these words. The birth date of our God has signaled the beginning of the gospel for the world. Gospel. Now, if you have any church background or experience at all, You've heard that word before. It's even made its way into our everyday language with phrases like gospel truth or gospel music. And we think of the word gospel, when we hear it, we usually think of spirituality, Christianity, or or even Jesus. But this word first became popular because of Caesar Augustus and his Roman Empire. It was a political word, a very political word. Gospel proclamations were actually pretty common in the early Roman world. They were sent out to announce a birth in the royal family or the expansion of the empire as they conquered another town or city and brought it into the Roman Empire. The empire was huge and it was ever expanding, meaning that these new nations were constantly being conquered and brought under Roman rule. Now, the Romans referred to this process as the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. But we know that any peace that the Pax Romana had was gained and maintained by brutal force from the Roman soldiers who at the time, at this point in history, were the most powerful warriors the world had ever known. The gospel of Caesar Augustus was good news for a really small group of people, the ruling elite. Most of the time, these gospel proclamations from Rome meant that yet another nation had been defeated. And yet another group of people had been enslaved to the empire. Or it meant that another royal heir had been born who would grow up to be yet another cruel dictator. Not exactly good news for the vast majority of people. This is the time and place and culture into which Jesus is born, where these gospel proclamations are constantly going out from Caesar and the Roman Empire. Luke actually begins his account of Jesus' birth by reminding his readers of that fact. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus, he reminds us, he sets the time and he sets the place. He lets his readers both then and now know exactly when and where this was happening and the socio-political climate that was currently happening. Now, Luke is about to make some incredible contrasts in the next few paragraphs. Contrast between a man pretending to be God in Caesar Augustus, and God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Contrast between the Roman Empire and the kingdom of God. Contrast, most importantly, between the gospel of Caesar Augustus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we don't understand these contrasts, 
We can't fully comprehend what Luke is trying to convey to us. We can't fully understand the good news that is the gospel of Jesus Christ without understanding the bad news that is the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Luke's original readers would have known all that background and about the Roman Empire and Caesar's gospel proclamations because they lived it. And now that we know it, we can better understand just how truly radical the birth of Jesus was, how it truly shifted the landscape and how it was a direct attack on the Roman Empire and the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Today is week two in a teaching series we're calling Kingdom Come. And it's all about the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah Jesus and the arrival of God's kingdom through him to the world. Last week, we journeyed through the stories of Elizabeth and Mary, these two women who gave birth to these two boys who changed the world, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. We'll actually talk more about John the Baptist and how he met up with Jesus and the baptism and all that stuff in a few weeks. But our main focus this week, and really for our entire year, is Jesus, the one Christians believe God is God in the flesh. Now, when I say he's our focus for the whole year, I really mean it. We are a couple of weeks into a year in the life of Jesus, which is exactly what it sounds like, this year-long journey through the life and work of Jesus. If you want more info about that, you can hit that link there at the bottom, restoreaustin.org slash Jesus. Now, a huge part of this journey is trying to help close the gap between our world and the world that Jesus lived in, between our culture and the culture that Jesus lived in, between our time and place and Jesus's time and place. Because not only are they separated by a few thousand years, they are separated by culture and distance. And they're really different. So helping us understand not just who he was, but the place in which he lived, the community in which he was a part of, helps us vitally go deeper in understanding the truths that he's trying to convey to us. Now, as I just said, Luke gives us a ton of important information in the opening sentences of chapter two. That's where we'll be for the rest of our time together is Luke chapter two. So go ahead and turn there with me. If you've got your Bible at home or you've got a phone or an iPad or anything like that, turn there with me. We're gonna walk through Luke chapter two. Now, if you don't have that, we've got the verses that'll also be on the screen for you. So Luke chapter two, starting in verse one. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinus was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their hometown to register. Now, in that day, it's important to note that censuses were used for all kinds of things. They obviously counting the population was a big one, but they were also used for military service enlistment, So you had the Roman soldiers, but they also had other things that they required uh, members of the empire to do. So they may have used the census to enlist them in those various things. It was also used for forced taxation or to just secure allegiance to the Roman empire by bringing everyone together and telling them just how important it was that they had allegiance to the Roman empire and exactly what would happen if they ever turned their backs or try to defy the Roman empire. But more than anything, A census reminded the Jewish people that they were not in charge, that they were not autonomous, that they were not free. They lived their lives at the whim of Caesar Augustus and the Roman Empire. No matter who they were or what obstacles they might have faced, every family in the empire was, was required to report to their hometown for this census. And that includes the little family that we were introduced to last week in Luke chapter one. 
Joseph and his pregnant fiance, Mary. Verse four. So Joseph also went up from the, home, the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, Luke's brevity here can sometimes imply for us a short journey. But in reality, the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem was a long and difficult one. This was a 90-mile trudge up and down hills. Now, nobody really knows exactly which season that Jesus was born in, but if it, it was winter, like the culture uh, usually talks about, walking through the Judean desert would have meant tons of rain with temperatures dropping below freezing at night. So not only did they have to traverse the up and down hills, they had to walk through the desert in a really difficult time. Because of the regularity of attacks on trips like these, Mary and Joseph would have likely been traveling in a group, possibly alongside other members of Joseph's extended family who were all around the region who were also going back to Bethlehem for the census. Now, this was a difficult trip for anyone to make, but especially hard on a young teenager who is nine months pregnant. We think that, scholars think that Mary was anywhere between 12, 13, 14 years old at this time. She is very pregnant. I said nine months. We're not exactly sure, but it says that she is very pregnant. In fact, uh, side note, I'm reading for the NIV here, which says she was expecting a child, and that expecting word has imminency to it. So the King James Version actually translates it that she was great with child. But maybe other translators thought uh, calling the mother of Jesus great with child wasn't very nice. But the King James paints this very vivid picture of just how pregnant Mary was when she was making this 90-mile journey. But even though it's a long, hard road, they make it. Verse 6, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, you may not realize this because the birth of Jesus and the Christmas story are such a big, familiar part of our lives every single year. But that short passage that I just read is everything Scripture talks about regarding the birth of Jesus. Matthew doesn't talk about it. Mark doesn't talk about it. John doesn't talk about it. When we hear more about the shepherds and the wise men later on, but Luke is the only one who covers the actual birth of Jesus, and these two verses are all that we have. Everything else you've ever heard about it is an extrapolation from these two verses. The rush to find a place right after they get into town because Mary is about to deliver. The passage we just read actually says they were already in Bethlehem when labor began. It's an extrapolation to talk about an innkeeper who turns them away, the, the animals all sniffing around the baby, the barn, the isolation of this little family. Everything that we usually think of or that is portrayed in a nativity scene or in the Christmas stories that we read is an extrapolation from these two verses. Now, we talked a lot about deconstruction and reconstruction a few weeks ago. Deconstruction is this process of kind of holding up and examining your beliefs to see which ones are actually true and biblical and worth keeping and which ones are simply the result of tradition or culture and they need to be discarded. Sometimes when we find out that a belief we've held for a long time isn't in scripture, it can be difficult, really difficult. It can feel like the rug is kind of moving from under us and we don't really feel like we have safety and security that we were brought up in anymore. 
But one of the really beautiful parts of deconstruction is that when you deconstruct an old belief, you find that the truth is actually so much better. And I believe that this is true of Jesus' birth as well. You see, I don't think Jesus was born in a barn. I don't think Mary and Jesus tried to get a room at an inn and were told there was no vacancy. To understand what probably happened that night of Jesus' birth, we need to better understand the time and the place and the culture in which it took place. Bethlehem was Joseph's hometown, right? So he traveled there, like I said, probably with a group of people because of the frequency of attacks on that road during that journey, He traveled with a group of people, probably family, but even if he didn't, when he got to the town of Bethlehem, he would have had relatives there. It was his hometown. And now, Eastern culture in the first century was so centered around hospitality that he surely would have been staying at a relative's house in his hometown. That would have been the plan all along. So, most likely, they were at a relative's house, not at an inn. We know that because of what I just said, but we also know that because the word that is sometimes mistranslated in actually means guest room in a home. You see, Luke uses a different word altogether when he talks about an inn, when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Do you remember this story? The Good Samaritan walks by, the guy's beaten up on the side of the road, the priest, the Levite, they all walk by, they don't care. But the Samaritan walks by, he picks the guy up, he cares for him, and then he takes him to an inn. And he pays for him to stay there for as many nights as needed. When Luke uses that word in, it's a totally different word from guest room that he uses in this story. We also know that in that time and place, common homes like the ones that would have filled Bethlehem were pretty basic. They essentially had two spaces. They had a living room in the front where everything happened during the day. Uh, It's where animals were brought in to sleep at night. It was kind of the, the big activity room. And then there was a second space, either behind the family room or above the family room, depending on if it was one or two-story home. And that space was divided into two parts, where the family slept at night and where the guests slept at night. Again, this culture was so centered around hospitality that every, basically every home had a guest space where guests could stay at night. Now, many scholars have written extensively about this setting and that night. If you want to take a deeper look into it, I would highly recommend a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Ken Bailey. And Ken Bailey actually spent 40 years living and teaching the New Testament in Egypt, Lebanon, Jerusalem, and Cyprus. and wrote an incredible book. But without having Ken Bailey here to explain it, I'm going to do the best that I can. Here's what I think happened. After a long and difficult journey... Joseph took Mary to stay at the home of one of his relatives. Since this was Joseph's hometown, staying with relatives had really been the plan all along. But because of Mary's advanced pregnancy, the journey from Nazareth took a little longer than they had expected. And when they arrive at Joseph's family's home, the guest room is already occupied. Remember, everyone who was from Bethlehem is back in town for the census. This little town would have been packed out. But instead of turning them away, Joseph's family makes a place for them in the big family living room. Sometime after their arrival, it could have been hours, it could have been days, Mary goes into labor. But when she does, she and Joseph aren't frantically searching for a place to stay. They aren't knocking on the door of an inn, being told to go away. They're in the family room, probably, with family. 
the women who had given birth before were probably there to help for the whole process, walk Mary through it until the young Jesus finally arrived. Yeah, there were probably animals poking around because they were in that first floor living room, but they were also surrounded by family. Baby Jesus was placed in a manger, but not before he was swaddled and cuddled by those who love him. I'm sure it wasn't easy. No birth then or now ever is, but I'm telling you, I think it was good. It was beautiful. And they were surrounded by family and loved ones. The arrival of Jesus was gospel. It was good news for this little family. Yeah, it was good news for the whole world, but it was also good news for Mary and Joseph and all of Joseph's extended family who got to be a part of it. It was good news that the promise had been made by God's angel way back nine, 10 months ago was finally coming to fruition. Author Sarah Bessie wrote a beautiful post about this last December called The Joy of Being Wrong at Christmas. And in it, she said, he, that's Jesus, came into the world, not isolated and alone and apart, but fully embedded within a family and a culture. Jesus was warm, Mary was supported, and they welcomed the shepherds there to that place as a family. The Christmas story isn't one of loneliness and quiet isolation in the darkness. This is a story of welcome and hospitality, of lamplight and family, of birth in all its incredible sacred humanness entrenched in a culture and in a time and within a family. Based on the language and our best understanding of the first century Eastern world, I think this is the real Christmas story. Now, do these differences radically change our lives? Probably not. But I think it's important that we do our best to get the Bible right when we're reading it and interpreting it. And that starts with understanding the time and place of each story. Now, I'm not asking you to start rearranging everyone's nativity scene, right? Or marking out passages of the book that you read on Christmas Eve. I'm just trying to help us truly immerse ourselves in the world that Jesus was born into. This is not a fairy tale we read once a year. This is a real story from a real time with real family and in a real home. And as Sarah mentions, that family home would have been the place where the shepherds first got to meet Jesus too. The shepherd story begins in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, a quick note about the shepherds. They were kind of social outcasts during this time. They were poor, and they were smelly, and they were unliked. Actually, many city leaders of the day banned shepherds from bringing their flocks into the city limits, so they often slept out under the stars with their sheep, which is exactly where the angel finds them, out grazing their flocks at night. Shepherds were very low on the societal totem pole, but they are the first to receive the good news about Jesus. Yet another indication of the upheaval that God's kingdom is ushering in. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you gospel. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This gospel proclamation stands in direct opposition to the gospel proclamations made by the Roman Empire. 
Luke is exposing the good news of Caesar Augustus for what it really is by telling us all about the one true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to show you something that I put together. These are just a few of the amazing differences between these two gospels. The gospel of Caesar Augustus is achieved by a man who thinks he's a god. The gospel of Jesus Christ is achieved by a god who became man. The gospel of Caesar Augustus is secured through conquest and death. The gospel of Jesus Christ is secured through peace and resurrection. Caesar Augustus' gospel thrives on fear, but Jesus's drives out fear. The gospel of Caesar turns free people into slaves. The gospel of Jesus sets enslaved people free. The gospel of Caesar Augustus pushes oppressed people farther down. The gospel of Jesus Christ lifts oppressed people up. And then finally, the gospel of Caesar Augustus is good news for a few people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for all people. Amazing differences that Luke puts on display here and Matthew, Mark, and John all do throughout their gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Just the very fact that they called their accounts gospel accounts was a direct attack on the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Again, exposing it for what it was, which was good news for a few people. Really, good news, uh, oppression disguised as good news. But the good news of Jesus Christ is so much better. The gospel of Caesar Augustus can't hold a candle to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not in the same league. It pales in comparison. But listen, y'all, it's even more than that. It's not just that one is better than the other. It is so vitally important for us to understand these two gospels are not friends. These two gospels are not allies. These two gospels aren't even just agreeing to disagree with each other. The gospel of Caesar Augustus and the gospel of Jesus Christ are at war with one another. They stand in direct opposition to one another. Pastor Nick Cady says it like this. When we understand this term gospel and how it was used in the ancient Greco-Roman world, we can begin to better understand the specific way in which the Christian gospels of Jesus Christ were written. They were written in such a way as to present Jesus as the true divine king who had come to bring true salvation to the whole world. And they were written as a direct challenge to the so-called gospel of Rome and its peace, which was enforced through brutality and which did not provide any actual salvation. In other words, the language used by the New Testament authors about Jesus is a direct attack on Caesar Augustus and the Roman Empire. Followers of Jesus Christ saying Jesus is Lord is a declaration that Caesar is not, something that was punishable by death in Rome. Jesus being called the son of God is a direct attack on Caesar who called himself the very same thing. Jesus claiming that he had come to usher in the kingdom of God is a declaration that the Roman empire is not of God and that it's on its way out. Let me equate this to modern times for us. Followers of Jesus Christ saying Jesus is Lord nowadays is a declaration that placing any allegiance higher than Jesus is sinful. Today, Jesus being called son of God is a direct attack on any leader who sets him or herself up as all-powerful. Today, 
Jesus claiming that he has come to usher in the kingdom of God is a declaration that the kingdoms of this world are not of God and that they are on their way out. From a very early age, Jesus and his message, his good news, forced people to choose where they place their allegiance. And as he began to grow older, the time came actually for him to be presented at the temple. This was a rite that all Jewish kids went to the temple to kind of be presented and consecrated. And when that time came, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus arrive at the temple and they meet a man named Simeon. Luke tells us that Simeon was a righteous man and that God had told him he wouldn't die until he had seen the Messiah. And that day in the temple, God's promise to Simeon is fulfilled. Luke 2, verse 28. Simeon was there. He took the child, that's Jesus, in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of all your people, Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, listen, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Jesus is the great revealer. He does not allow us to remain neutral. He shows us who we are, what we're about, and where our allegiances truly lie. And he loves each and every one of us enough to call us to something better, his gospel and his kingdom. Jesus came to bring good news of great joy to all people. But even though it was a message of radically inclusive love, not everyone liked it. Some people were even threatened by it. You see, not everyone wants to bring great joy to all people. Much too often, equality for all people sounds like losing for the folks on top. One of my favorite movies from the 90s is called Dead Man Walking. Susan Sarandon plays this nun named Sister Helen who serves as a spiritual advisor to a guy on death row named Matthew who's played by Sean Penn. She goes to visit him many times and they have these really long talks. And during one of their talks, Sister Helen tells Matthew about the folks who were in power during Jesus' day and just how radical his message and his gospel really were. She says, Jesus was a dangerous man. His love changed things. All those people, nobody cared about, the prostitutes, beggars, the poor, they finally had somebody who respected them, who loved them, who made them realize their own worth. They had dignity and they were becoming so powerful that the guys on top got real nervous. So they had to kill Jesus. What an incredible description of the life that Jesus led. But you and I know that even though they killed Jesus, Jesus didn't stay dead. I hate to give away the ending of our year in the life of Jesus, but spoiler alert, Jesus rises from the grave. He doesn't stay dead. The Roman Empire eventually becomes nothing more than a chapter in our history books, and now more than one-third of the global population identifies as Christian. But even though the gospel of Caesar Augustus may be long gone, there are many that have risen up in its place. You know them. They're gospels of money, of sex, of power, 
of partisanism, of nationalism, and a myriad of other things promising that if we just place our faith and hope in them, they will give us what we really want. But they won't. They won't. Listen, if you've missed everything else that I've said this morning, please don't miss this. At the core, at their core, at their core, every other gospel is about elevating some people over others. It's about oppressing some people so that others can prosper. And that is the exact opposite of the good news that Jesus came to bring. That's what I mean when I say the gospel of Jesus and every other gospel is at war with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to bring good news to all people. Everything else wants to bring good news to some people. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it cannot peacefully coexist with any other gospel. The kingdom of God is not an addendum to whatever else we are interested in. Jesus and his kingdom demand primacy in our lives and they are worthy of it too because they are the only thing that will bring you and every other human in this world true and lasting joy. Joy that surpasses understanding, that transcends our circumstances. So I wanna ask you, what good news are you placing your hope in? What gospel are you following? Because I love you enough to tell you that if it's anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to leave you broken and alone. Even if it makes you powerful, it's gonna leave you empty. Remember what the angel said to the shepherds that night. Don't be afraid. I bring you gospel. Good news that will bring great joy to all people. Good news of great joy to all people. Don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for a gospel that only brings a little joy to a few people because there is nothing like the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing in the history of the world that has truly been good news of great joy to all people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the message from your servant Luke this morning. God, what an incredible way he has with words as he walks through the, the birth and presentation of Jesus at the temple. God, what an incredible piece of wisdom you gave to Simeon there at the temple when he said that Jesus would be the great revealer of many hearts. God, we pray this morning, reveal our hearts to us. Reveal where we've placed our faith in some other gospel, some other good news. Reveal where we have pursued some other kingdom, some kingdom of this world instead of your kingdom, God. God, don't let us settle for less than good news of great joy for all people. Help us to pursue that, God, in our lives, in our communities, in our country, and in our world. God, that you would bring great joy, salvation, freedom to every single person in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.